here. Um, because uh, this morning we're going to be talking in uh, in First Thessalonians. Actually, the next three weeks we're going to be talking about um, kind of last time things. And I think that it's always important to think about how did we get where we are, because that helps us understand where we're going. And um, and if you don't know the story, I just want to very briefly um, for those of you that have been with us the last few months. For some of you, this is old hat, but I want to tell you the story. Uh, of Bedford Road, because I think it helps us get into perspective just how great our God is. Um, Tom and I met in 1991. Um, my dad was candidating for a church where his father was the um, on the pulpit search committee. Uh, and we met and we hung out playing board games and torturing his brother Bob um, and my sister Kristen. Uh, and then eventually my dad was called to that church, and we moved up there in January of 1992. Um, Tom and I uh, are a couple years apart, so I went to college, and then he wound up at college right about the time that I moved away from campus and was almost never there, and um, then uh, Becky started coming to my dad's church, I think, because she thought Tom was cute, and, um, and there, was, there was this whole thing that was going on, um, and I actually, I was thinking about that, I, I actually forgot, I used to give I gave you rides to church, isn't that you and, um, oh, what was his name? Uh, there was a kid that went to my dad's church from the school, oh, Indian kid, I can't, Richard, that's what his name was, um, and I had this Ford Escort, do you guys remember the Escort with the, the automatic seatbelts in the front, you, you would like try to open the door and it would take your head off going forward, I wonder why they didn't keep those, um, but anyway, so Tom and Becky were uh, part of my dad's church while they were at school, and then I moved up here, and then Tom moved up uh, I moved up here to, to teach in a Christian school and eventually be an assistant pastor uh, in Litchfield after I graduated. And then Tom moved up um, uh, after he was finished doing school. I won't say it wasn't quite a graduation. Um, but uh, Tom, Tom and Becky got married, moved to Manchester, you know, and then they had Caitlin, and she was just the cutest baby, and it's been downhill since then. And um, I can torture her now because she's, she's an adult. Um, but uh, the, uh, you know, and, and then, then I actually candidated for a church in New Jersey um, in 2000, I think it was, uh, 2001, I think it was 2001, it was, it's been a long time, and Tom's, uh, Becky's family is from New Jersey, and so they went to visit family, and we kind of hooked up while we were there, and kind of chatted and stuff, and then, um, and we had been talking about ministry and things, he was at a different church, and um, and helping with a church plant, and um, and then he took a job at Becky's home church, um, and was he, he he was serving down there, and then we started talking about email about planning a church in Manchester. Tom Tom had come up to Manchester, helped plan a church. It had not worked out, um, and so he'd gone back to New Jersey. And then we started talking about this, and then Tom moved his family, which at the time was only four people, um, up to uh, up to Manchester uh, in 2003 like the end of four, early 2004, um, and early 2004, um, and then Nicole got pregnant with Becky, with uh, Ariel, and Becky was pregnant with Jenna, and then we got a call from Heritage Baptist Church, and then rather than planning a church, we brought our core over, it was Tom and Becky and their kids and a couple other families, and we came over to, um, to Heritage, and we served there from 2004 until 2009 when the money ran out, 
Um, and God was, we knew God had something big for us, but we could not afford $3,000 a month for renting facilities. If you remember 2008, 2009, um, there were not a lot of people with jobs at that point. Um, and uh, we, had, we had a lot of unemployed people at our church. We actually had people moving into each other's houses to make things work. Um, I took a job, all of these things. We tried all kinds of things, and then ultimately um, I found out about uh, what was Grace Baptist Church from, uh, I used to ride my bike past here, and so I would pray uh, for this church. I didn't know anything about them, but I would just pray for them. I'd ride past here, and uh, what, what is, uh, uh, was Bedford Foursquare, it's got a different name now, Trinity Life, and, um, and, uh, and all of these, I would pray for these churches, and then um, I connected with the only other Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan in New Hampshire, uh, Darren Shaw, who was the pastor of Christ Church in Amherst, and he and his crew were helping with, at Grace. And then I connected with Donald Bush, who was on the pastoral search committee at Grace. And what came out of that was Bedford Road. Um, and God has miraculously brought together just extraordinary events. I mean, if you would ask Tom and I at, at 14 and 15 years old, um, that this is where we would be. And that we would still be playing the same song. Um, but, uh, but God, God does extraordinary things in his church. And I think sometimes we get so buried in the details and the minutia of, of church life and keeping things running and all those things that we, we need to take a moment and pause to see where we've come from and then see where we're going. Uh, and, and, um, I'm not going to do announcements and things. I'm going to get right into the sermon um, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians because that's where Paul starts to deal with where are we going and how can it be an encouragement for us. And the first part of that is kind of sad, um, but we're going to look at that. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then we're going to get into the scriptures. Father, we're your church, broken, flawed, imperfect, struggling to live in grace. Your grace, which abounds, manifests in us. Your power, given to us by your Holy Spirit, and yet, uh, so often, we, we are either frustrate what you're doing, or we, um, or we try to jump in, or we're impatient, or we're, we just get lost in the details. Whatever it is, Father, we ask that you would bring us to your word today. Help us, if our spirits need to be renewed, to be renewed. If we need to be challenged, to challenge us. If, you, if our, our, our eyes need to be reopened, reopen them. If they need to be closed, help us to close them. Wherever it is that you're taking us this morning, Lord, help us to know we're going because you're leading us there. And help us to believe and trust no matter what. We pray this in Jesus' name. So I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of First Thessalonians. We're just going to be in First Thessalonians for the next three weeks. We've been um, going through First and Second Thessalonians together, um, and we are going to hit a passage that is doesn't have a parallel in First Thessalonians, and it is particularly a passage dealing with the end. Um, and so the, these three weeks that I'm going to be spending, I, I titled them 
eschatos, which is the Greek word for the end, all right? Um, and and that's the, the word eschatology, the study of last things, um, is part of theology. And there is no field of theology um, where, and those of you that have studied theology know this, there is no field where there are more opinions than eschatology. Um, there are more positions on the end of the world and end of life and all these things, and there are, I'm not going to get into any of that. But what I want to do is I want to look at, at these passages in particular the way that Paul was using what he says. And he says this twice in chapter 4, uh, verse 18 and 5:11. He says, encourage each other with these words. These are meant to be passages about encouragement in a state of affairs that the Thessalonian church found themselves in that was not easy or like, like Ray was talking about, not comfortable. Um, they were a church that was now facing the reality that you could die for being a Christian. And they were asking the question, what does this mean? They're asking Paul. And I think, and again, I wouldn't take a bullet for this, but I think they sent a letter to Paul and they said, how do we make sense of our brothers and sisters dying for the gospel? How do we make sense of this? And what Paul does, it's so, it's so ingrained in the theological mind what he writes here, that I think we, we sometimes miss that what Paul does is he masterfully weaves together the Hebrew Scriptures, the Greek experience, the Gospel of Jesus to encourage his church, to encourage Christ's church. And so we're going to look at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. Now, what Paul says when he says those who are asleep, he's talking about those who are dead, those who have died. And that seems like an interesting turn of phrase. Why not just say those who have died? He does later say, he says um, in that uh, in verse um verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. So he, he's not afraid to use the word dead. So why does he use this term, fallen asleep? Why does he describe it that way? Well, there's, there's a couple of things that are going on there. One of the first things that I think you need to understand about the world that Paul is writing to, the Greek world, is that philosophically they had thoughts about death. Not religiously, um, the Greeks had lots of religion, but it was, it was all meant to just kind of be there. 
their gods were, were capricious. Their gods were um, part of creation. Their, their gods behaved like spoiled children, um, even though they had enormous powers. You would not want to worship any of their gods. If their go- one god got jealous with another god, he might turn into a horse and kick you in the face. I mean, there, there was just, there was all kinds of insanity about Greek religion. And Greek religion just kind of sat in their culture. It was there, they believed it. I'm not saying that they were insincere, but there was really nothing about their, their religion that had to do with a whole lot that mattered to them. And so the Greeks in the Roman world had really become a people of philosophy. And there were a lot of different schools of philosophy in Greece. Um, sometimes scholars will talk about how there were these two schools. There was the Epicureans and, and the other group. Um, you know, and uh, they, I forget, they sophists or something, I don't remember. Um, but they, they, they said, well, there are only these two schools. In reality, there were hundreds of Greek schools of philosophy. There were all kinds of different ways about seeing the world, but they all had one thing in common. They were not concerned with death. They were concerned with how you lived. Some said, oh, you know, the Stoics said, you've got to live, um, you've got to deprive yourself of pleasure because that's the only true life. And then the Epicureans said on the other side, just do whatever you feel, you know, it's life is about the experience, you can move, and it's probably somewhere along the line, there was somebody that said, your life is totally about spaghetti. I really don't know. There were all kinds of different philosophies, and the Greeks were philosophers, they loved to sit around and debate details about things and pretend like they understand. I joked around with one of my professors this week, which may have been a mistake, and said that um, she asked me a, a question about something, and, and I replied back that, that um, theology is just being confident in your ignorance. I was joking. I wasn't saying that that's all theology is, and I hope she got the joke. She seemed to get the joke. She laughed. Um, but, you know, so often there are people that just have attitudes about things and they have no reason for it. They have no, no rhyme or reason. They have no scripture for it, but they walk around and act like it's absolute concrete evidence. And true theology is about the Bible. It's about understanding the scriptures and understanding what God has to say. Well, the Greek philosophers were a lot like that. Whatever you do and whatever you believe, just do it confidently. Life was all that mattered, and nothing else mattered. So it didn't matter what happened when you die, because when you died, the philosophical journey was over. You couldn't philosophize anymore. You, you were done, and you were off the stage, and it was time for somebody else to philosophize. That was the Greek mentality toward the world. Why did the Romans dominate the world? Because they were the smartest and best of us, and eventually there will be a smarter and best group, and they'll take over. That was how the, the Greeks viewed things. They were very much fatalistic. They were just like, you live, and then it's over. But Paul, because he's a Hebrew, does not believe that. He believes something different. If you go back into Torah, if you go back into the Scriptures in the Old Testament, you discover a very interesting thing about what the Hebrews believed about death and life that nobody around them believed. Everybody around the ancient Hebrews, everybody around the Bible, when the Bible was being written, when, when Genesis, Exodus, you know, Moses and Abraham and all that stuff, um, when that stuff was being done in David, there were, there were lots of cultures that had lots of terminology that was very similar to what the Hebrews believed. There were lots of people that believed in what's called the tripartite world. Um, they believed that the world was composed of the sky where the gods live, the earth where you live, and then the underworld, Sheol, where all the dead people lived. 
And there they lived as basically shades. They were just shadows of themselves. They weren't really them. I mean, they were recognizable as people, but they didn't connect. They didn't relate. They didn't talk. They just kind of drifted along a lot and um, you know, got drifty. I mean, that's what they did. Um, it, it, they, they had kind of this belief that you buried a body and their, their, their soul or their being drifted through the ground to the underworld across the great sea and, and then just kind of floated around as a shade. The Hebrews didn't believe that. Now, when you get into uh, books about the Old Testament, they will always try to say that the Hebrews believed that, but they didn't. And here's how I know that they didn't. You can look in the scriptures and you will find two very powerful statements about what happens when you die. And, and in 1 Kings, uh, let me start with Deuteronomy. I'll talk about Moses. Um, in, in Deuteronomy, you get this line, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for you soon as I find Deuteronomy. Talking about Moses' death, all right? In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse, verse 15. Die on the mountain. This is God talking to Moses. Die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people. And as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. See, um, I'm going to use another one, and in this case, I'm going to talk about David. Um, and these are not the only places that these terms exist. They're, they're all through Scripture. You'll find them all the time. When David was dying, David, cha- uh, 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10, then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. See, the Hebrews did not believe that when you died, you just drifted down to an underworld and you just became a shade. They believed that when you died, you went and joined the other faithful of your family. That death was a family reunion. That it was a gathering. That it was a celebration. And that was extremely different from everybody else around them. Whereas everybody else basically had the same mentality. You die, you become a shade, what's the point? Just live your life. For the Hebrews, there was something sitting at the bottom of their thinking that said there's more to this. Uh, when David's son with Bathsheba, his first son with Bathsheba, died, uh, David stands up and he gets, washes himself up, and everybody says, what are you doing? He says, well, as long as he was sick, um, I, I prayed that God would heal him. But now that he's gone, he's gone, and he can't come to me, but I can go to him. They believed that there was something in the afterlife that you went and you were with those who had been faithful. Now, they didn't articulate it the way that Christianity does with heaven and all the stuff we know from Revelation and Jesus and, and John and all that. There's, there's a lot more in the New Testament about it. But they believed that when you died, you, you went to be with your family. And they used this term uh, with David that he slept with his fathers, this idea that death was, was in some way the body present today would sleep. But the person was still alive. Now, there's, there's a theological position called soul sleep, the idea that when you die, you just stay asleep until the resurrection, you're just out, world's longest nap. Um, that, that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures don't argue that. The scriptures very obviously, and I don't have the time to get into it, but they very obviously argue um, the Hebrews believed there was an active participation in the afterlife. You were alive. You were you. You, you were dead, but you were alive. And, and that paradox, And Paul borrows this when he says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
He's not saying that they've gone asleep and one day they'll wake up, but rather that they, they just like David had slept with his, he sleeps with his father, so too these people were gathered to their people. They were not, they were not ended. And this has a significant importance to a group of people who were facing persecution by the authorities of their world. Because the authorities of their world thought that they were sovereign over the lives of the Christians. That if they could kill the Christians, they could control the Christians. And Paul argues that power to kill, and Jesus makes this argument as well, by the way, in the Gospels, the power to kill is not the same thing as the power of life and death. That resides with God. But then he takes another step. So, so far, that's in keeping with the Old Testament. But then Paul makes this statement in verse 15. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, some people read that and they go, well, Paul had some kind of special miraculous revelation about what happens at the end of time. That, that you know, he, Paul, God said to Paul, Paul, I want to teach you something that you've never heard before. And Paul went, okay. He received this word from the Lord. I don't believe that that's what he's saying. When Paul uses the term word of the Lord, he is referring to the gospel. In this case, when we read what he says, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Well, where is he getting that idea? And lots of people go lots of different places. I'm just going to give you one place. In Luke 21, and Luke is Pauline, that's the theological term for it. Gospels is, are the Gospels, so people like to say that kind of stuff. Luke 21 and verse 27. Well, let's start in verse 25. This is Jesus talking. And he says, there will be signs and in signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring seas and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. He's talking about the end. Um, he's specifically, he's, he's folding into the end of world, into the end of the temple. It's an interesting thing that he's doing. I don't have time to get into all that. But verse 27 Verse 26, people fainting with fear, with foreboding, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When a Roman general liberated a city, he would come to the city and he would ride and he would be declared as he arrived. He would be declared with trumpets blaring and the army marching to reveal his power and glory. And so the Thessalonians understand exactly what's going on here. And Paul is taking their idea of what a conquering general is like when he comes to a city he has saved and he is using it to illustrate for them what Jesus said when he said, the Son of Man will come in glory and power. 
The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Now, the Romans would declare, and we don't know whether what the command will actually be, although the, Revelation, the book of Revelation seems to indicate the command will be rise, that he will command the dead to rise. But he says, it says he will, he will uh, descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we will, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. See, Paul's a Hebrew. He believes that when you die, you're gathered to your family. You're gathered to the faithful. But he's a Christian. And he believes that he is a part of the household of God and that Christ is the head of that household. And so, when Christ descends, he calls to his household and he says, rise, come to me. And they gather. The people gather. Because they were killed by people who thought that the power to kill was the power of life and death. But the one who has the true power of life and death is Christ. And when he calls them, there is no power in heaven or earth or the underworld that would prevent those who have died to be gathered to him. Now, Revelation has a lot more to talk about this, and I can't get into that. I already preached on Revelation. Go back and watch it on Check it on the website. But what he is doing, what he is setting all of this up for us to understand, I think, is that Paul is trying to explain to the church that we are called to be not just the church, just the, not organization or an institution or a gathering on Sunday morning, but to be a part of the family of the one who holds the keys of heaven and hell. And though we lose our brothers and sisters, and we Americans, we're lucky. We don't lose our brothers and sisters to the persecution. I won't say lucky. We're blessed at this time to not lose our brothers and sisters in Christ here at home to persecution. Although how long that will last, who knows? But for them, they needed to know that all is not lost when your life is taken. You are still a part of the household. You are still going to be gathered to the Lord. And it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, I, was, I did a funeral last year, a memorial service, and, and I had a, a young man come up to me in tears. And he said, I, I'm worried I did the wrong thing. My father died uh, a, a couple months ago, and we couldn't afford a funeral. We couldn't afford all the, so, so I had him cremated. Do you think that I have prevented my dad from being resurrected? Now, believe it or not, this was actually an argument made against cremation for a long time. Do we really honestly think that if God can put life back into something that is dead, turning it to ash is going to frustrate his purposes? I mean, think about it. The Bible says earth to earth, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
This is what you came from. This is what you'll go back to. And yet it also says you will be resurrected. You will receive, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about you will receive a heavenly body. A earthly body, you will have a heavenly body. It doesn't, spiritual body, it doesn't matter. I said, what about people that are buried at sea? You really think that's going to stop him? Well, he's been eaten by crabs. So what? The one who created you in the first place, he can recreate you. He's not worried. He's not intimidated. I actually had somebody say, you know, if you believe in the resurrection, then when God resurrects all these people, where are they all going to live? What? Why are you even asking me that question? I mean, that, that, that's like, like he can give you know, life back to dead bodies, but we're worried about whether he's going to be able to have enough square footage. I mean, really? Paul wants the church to know we will be gathered. Though we are scattered, we will be gathered. It's so easy to get frustrated. Uh, it's so easy to get frustrated when you look around the, the Christian landscape and you say, well, I don't know. I mean, where's the... I mean, the, my Baptist forefathers had this question in the 1600s in America, uh, in, in the, the British colonies in America. They said, they said, how do we know what the true church is? Because people are just being allowed to join the church whenever they're born or if they pay their taxes. Or, you know, they, they, it, there's no faith. There's no commitment here. And Baptists being nonconformists and troublemakers said, maybe you need to actually believe in Christ before you can be a part of the church. Saying that in the midst of a state church is not a good idea. Um, Obadiah Holmes was whipped for it, for daring to serve communion to old ladies that couldn't make it to church. Seriously? In Massachusetts. You can look him up. Uh, Hezekiah Smith was actually barred from coming to um, uh, uh, Kittery, Maine. The pastors of the churches in Kittery, Maine stationed armed guards at the roads into town to prevent Hezekiah Smith from coming because every time he showed up, their church services emptied and people came to faith in Christ. That's why I'm not ashamed to use the word Baptist. I know it's got a lot of problems with it. I know there's a lot of baggage, but those are the guys that I want to be identified with. But they asked the question, who is the church? Because they were so frustrated in the state church where people were just living in sin and causing trouble and being corrupt and hierarchy and taxes and all this stuff. They said, who is the church? And it's so easy to get frustrated because we look around and we go, man, the, the true believers are so scattered. There's so much against us. How are we ever going to survive? If God can gather the dead to himself, then he can empower us, the living, to walk with him. That's what he's saying to the Thessalonian church. They're so worried about death. He says, death is just a little nap. It's just a brief interlude before we're gathered into the presence of the Lord. Now, you could argue about how we get gathered. The Bible college I went to, they had like three gatherings. They were like, God, Jesus resurrects the dead, then he comes from heaven, he takes them, to, and then he, then he leaves us, and then he comes back, and then he just, I'm like, man, Jesus keeps missing people. He keeps coming back. 
Um, you know, there, there's, there's all, this, all these arguments that are going on. I, I'm not worried about that theology. You guys know that my view of the end times is Jesus is coming back to rule and reign. The details are fuzzy. Let's get on with the work of the church. But we need to be encouraged. Those that have died, they'll be gathered. Those that are in traditions that we don't like, they'll be gathered. Those, those who fall by the wayside and struggle but have faith, they'll be gathered. And one day, somewhere at some point, you and I will either die or we will watch those who have gone before us be gathered to Him and then we will be gathered to them. And we will sit in the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will rejoice in the presence of the great I Am. Be encouraged and encourage one another because the weight of this world, is there any greater weight on this world than suffering and death? It tears apart on us. It tears us apart. It, it weighs on us. It buries us. My dad used to say, the older I get, the sweeter heaven gets because more and more of my friends are there. To which I generally reply, well, dad, you're kind of hard to get along with. You don't have a lot of friends to start with. To which he replies, look who's talking. Because my dad and I love each other and torture each other endlessly. But one day, one day, we will be gathered. My grandfather, my grandmother, Ron, Greg, Karen, all those that we've lost. We will be gathered in the presence of the one who saves us. And there's nothing on earth or in heaven or in the underworld that is going to stop Jesus from gathering his help to himself. Be encouraged and encourage one another. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are called to be your church. Not everybody here has come to a place of putting their faith in you. And never a day goes by that I don't pray that your spirit opens eyes and ears and hearts. But Father, for those of us who have come to faith, we, we do spend sometimes the dark hours of the night the long mornings, hoping to see those who have come befo gone before. We're lucky. We don't have, we're blessed. We don't have a lot of people we know who were persecuted and died, and yet we still, we long to be gathered together. Help us to live with hope. Not just to live and get to the end but on our journey to the end, bring glory to you. Lord, help us to hope and your, the, your faith and our faith, your spirit, your work, as we stay here, not just waiting for this to come to an end, but living as you've called us to live, to be your kingdom here on earth, 
be gathered to your kingdom in your presence. Lord, may your glory be manifest in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember to love one another and encourage one another, my brothers and sisters.